The West Indies was the graveyard of the British Redcoats of the late 18th century. Death by diseases such as yellow fever almost wiped out an entire generation of soldiers. But the campaign's wage should not only be remembered for sickness. Today, I am joined by author Steve Brown to learn all about the fascinating island-hopping campaign of Sir Charles Grey in 1794. It's a campaign that saw the under-resourced British adopt advanced light infantry tactics on their way to some impressive victories. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, a place for military history geeks like you and I. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a comment as that really helps others to find it too. I also have a YouTube channel and will be posting some clips from this interview with Steve there also. Just search for Redcoat History over on YouTube. Steve Brown really is a great guy and a brilliant historian. I've actually got a number of his other books at home. The book we're discussing today is by Fire and Bainet, published by Helion. I asked Steve to start by explaining the background to Britain's 1794 expedition to the West Indies. Once war was declared in late January 1793, an expeditionary force went off to Belgium, as they usually do. You know, 1914, 1939, you know. History repeats itself constantly. Um, <clears throat> but all of these wars have one thing in common, and that was the, the search for a second front. If you think about World War I, uh, six months after war was declared, Churchill sent an expeditionary force to the Dardanelles. Um, after Dunkirk, Britain sent an exp expeditionary forces to Norway and to North Africa. So the, the, this, this thinking about the second front was in fact incredibly common and they, they did it back then as well. And one of the reasons why the West Indies was so, uh, so in people's minds was that in 1793, the West Indies accounted for one third of all French trade and 20% of the French population depended on the West Indies um, either directly or indirectly for their livelihoods. And the West Indies islands um, um, had roughly, well, actually slightly over half a million slaves, which is roughly equal to the population of Paris at that time. Um, <clears throat> so if... Were these were these slaves just on the French islands, Steve, or this is across... On the French islands. The French had slightly over half a million slaves. Britain had about 460,000 slaves. So combined, they had about a million slaves on probably about 15 or 20 islands. And um, for Britain, it was a double whammy. Uh, the West Indies accounted for one third of all French trade. So if Britain could capture all the French islands, not only would they deprive France of one third of its trade, which is pretty crippling, but the monetary value of all that would revert to Britain. So it was, you know, it was almost a no brainer. Why wouldn't they do it? It was a win win. Um, and traditionally, Britain had always maintained at that time about 6,000 troops in the island, which is about 10 or 12 battalions at the time, uh, with a significant proportion of the Royal Navy, um, divided into two commands. You had Barbados in the east and Jamaica in the west with about 3,000 troops in all. And close to Barbados were the French Antilles Islands, which was basically Guadeloupe, uh, Martinique, and St. Lucia, and Tobago, uh, which Britain thought was ripe for the plucking. If they could capture those islands, then they could uh, 
severely crippled French uh, trade. Um, there was also another very large colony. In fact, it was the, the richest colony in the world at the time, uh, Saint-Domingue in, Saint I should say, in what is modern Haiti. Uh, the Haiti, was, in fact, at the time was divided into two halves. You had the French in the west in Saint-Domingue and the Spanish in the east in San Domingo. Um, that wasn't it's still basically how the island world. is divided, I believe, isn't it? It's still essentially divided yeah, along yeah, that line. So. That was the richest public. colony in the world. And my book doesn't concentrate on that campaign because that's another whole book in itself, right? That was a, it started in 1793 and it went on until 1798, um, where Britain basically gave up and left. And that was the campaign that saw the rise of uh, Toussaint Louverture, who's called the Black Napoleon. Um, and it's a whole other story to itself. Um, so I won't really go into that here. But certainly from Britain's point of view, in early 1793, Guadeloupe, Martinique, St. Lucia and Tobago were very much on the minds of the power brokers in Whitehall, particularly Sir Henry Dundas, the, the, uh, the minister, minister of, sorry, the Secretary of State at War and the Colonies, as he later became, who, in conjunction with Prime Minister William Pitt, was extremely anxious to get an expeditionary force going to capture these islands and cripple French trade. So that was the genesis of it. Um, it was it was trade related, basically. OK. And then so in 1793, I think I'm right in saying the British army had been left to rot a little bit after the American Revolution. I, I, perhaps you'll correct me. But what state was the army in? What what sort of manpower did they have and what state were they in to, to deploy such yeah, a, yeah. a force? Rot, rot is not the quite the right word. Um, it had been allowed to, to run down in terms of manpower. And later commentators like Sir John Fortescue and Henry Bunbury were very quick to state that Pitt and his cronies had allowed the British Army to run down and become a, a, a semblance of its former self. Um, there is some political uh, politicism or politics going into that because um, particularly Henry Bunbury was married into the Fox family. He was a Whig and Pitt, of course, was a Tory. So anything he could do to poke a stick at Pitt, he did. Um, <clears throat> Certainly the army had allowed, had been allowed to run down in numbers. And you've got to remember that the British army was, was not owned by the army, was not owned by the king. The army was a tool of parliament. Parliament decided how much money the, the army could have each year. In fact, it actually decided whether there even could be an army each year, according to the Mutiny Act, and how many men they could have. And the tradition was when there's no war on, you wore the, down, the army down to its lowest possible number and then you bumped it up again whenever there's a war. And then when the war finished, you ran the numbers down again, which is exactly what had happened after the war in North America. And at the start of 1793, the British army only had, in terms of regulars, about 48,000 men, um, plus about 8,500 militia. And... Of that, about 8,000 men, which is fairly typical for the time, were in Ireland as a permanent garrison. Um, and you've got to remember the British Army at the time was also the police force. So all of the cavalry regiments were always dotted around the Midlands uh, in penny packets all over the place, acting as police across towns all over the, the length and breadth of the British Isles. In fact, I think it was Fortescue who criticised Dundas for... 
um, keeping the army dispersed as policemen rather than concentrated as soldiers, which was one of his statements. Um, plus, they had to be abroad. I mean, of that, if we count the militia, 56,000 men, about 21,000 of those were abroad. So there's only actually 35,000 men, including militia, in Britain uh, at the start in January 1793 when France declared war. And France at that time had an army of about 300,000 men, just to put this in context. Um, by the end of 1793, uh, of course, you know, Parliament had given them some more funds and the army had risen again in numbers. By the end of the year, it was about 150,000 men. Um, but of that 150,000... That was, that was quick. They, they, they managed to build yeah, those numbers pretty quickly. 100,000 in, in a year. But um, a lot of those were militia. It was about, um, let me think, about 45,000 of those were militia. And about 20,000, 22,000, 23,000 were Hanoverian and Hessen Castle troops from Germany, uh, German mercenaries in British service, because like during the American War of Independence, uh, whenever the chips were down, um, Parliament would go out and buy German mercenaries to help fill the gaps. <clears throat> so the numbers weren't uh, quite as high. And of that 151,000, about 20,000 were in the West Indies uh, Gibraltar and New South Wales, and about 10,000 were in India, 10 or 11,000 in India, which was a, a big uh, user up of manpower. So we've got this sort of basically, as, as, as has always been the case, this small British, essentially expeditionary army. What sort of force are they able to put together to go to the West Indies, West Indies and who's the commander? Based on the fact that they only had 48,000 men at the start of the year, you might not think that they'd managed to, to scramble together much of an expeditionary force at all, by, particularly given that they'd already sent an expeditionary force to Belgium uh, or the Austrian Netherlands, as it was called at the time. Um, <clears throat> the man chosen to command this expedition to the West Indies was a guy by the name of Sir Charles Grey. He was born in about 1729 in Northumberland. His father was a minor aristocrat. Uh, he joined the army when he was 14 and he saw some service in the Jacobite Rebellion, but he actually wasn't at Culloden. When he was a captain, he transferred to the 20th foot and his um, commanding officer was a guy who actually wasn't much older than he was, uh, a fellow that you might have heard of by the name of James Wolfe. Um, and Wolfe appointed him to command the light company of the 20th foot. And uh, one of his first expeditions was uh, uh, to... An, uh, an amphibious expedition to land troops at Rochefort on the French uh, French coast, which was a complete disaster. And a little bit like Wellington's experience after the war in Flanders in 1794, when he said, well, at least it taught me what not to do, and that is something, Gray made similar comments about the, the, the expedition to Rochefort, about what a disaster it was, but at least it taught him what not to do. Um, so he thought, next time I do an amphibious Amphibious expedition, I'm going to do a lot better than that. Uh, he fought uh, in the Seven Years' War. He, he was at Minden, quite a famous battle, oh, yeah. uh, where he was an aide-de-camp to uh, the Prince of Brunswick, of all people. Um, and the 20th Foot, which was his regiment, uh, gained considerable credit at Minden. Uh, in fact, they still celebrate it to this day. So that was quite a, quite a thing for him. He came back to England and while still only a captain was offered a regiment of foot, the 98th, which was a complete shambles, complete rabble. Um, so he didn't have a very good experience for that. And then he got a bit, a bit sidelined and bored. So he offered to uh, join uh, an expeditionary force to Portugal to 
possibly counter land grabs by Spain, which was happening in the 1760s. And um, he ended up as a, with the local rank of a colonel in the Portuguese army because British officers could transfer to the Portuguese army with a higher rank. And it just goes to show that what Wellington developed mm. in the 1800s was in fact, it actually happened earlier on, 40 years earlier. Yeah, I, I hadn't, hadn't realized there was a, a history yeah. of that happening. Yeah. Um, he came back home to Britain. He was made an, an aide-de-camp to King George in 1772, so he moved his family to London. Um, in 1777, he was appointed Major General, but only in North America, um, which was what they call local rank. Um, so he sailed off for New York in 1777, and he really made his name with two actions uh, during his service in North America. One was the Battle of Paoli in September 1777, where he was ordered to make a night attack on an American camp in Pennsylvania. And he ordered his composite light battalion to remove the flints from the muskets and to fix bayonets so they wouldn't shoot whilst they were attacking. They were to go in with the bayonet only. This is explicit order. So they did. They went in and mostly bayoneted the Americans as they slept. Um, caught them completely by surprise, took lots of prisoners, and the whole thing had happened without a single shot being fired. And then again, about a year later, he, he made a similar assault on um, a town or a village in New Jersey where he'd been tipped off that an American light, light dragoon, uh, Continental Light Dragoon Regiment had been uh, encamped. So same thing again. He assembled a battalion of light infantry, a battalion of grenadiers, no flints, bayonets only. And um, during the night, they went in, went around house to house, bayoneting the dragoons, rounding them up. And he became known as No Flint Grey, which within the British Army was a compliment, but the Americans thought he was a butcher. To them, No Flint Grey was a form of uh, derogation, if you like. Um, he went home uh, and to find himself a substantive major general, um, was given a post to help uh, improve the defences of Plymouth during the Gibraltar crisis in 1782, where he met up with the senior Royal Navy officer, a guy by the name of John Jervis, who was, uh, I think, a rear admiral at the time. And the two of them got on like a house on fire. They really hit it off and uh, became great friends. In uh, 1782, or a little bit later that year, he was offered the post of second in command of forces in North America, uh, North America, which he thought was not something he wanted to do because the war was effectively over. However, the following year, he was re-offered um, the job. They really wanted him to take, well, in fact, they wanted him to be commander in chief in North America in a war that was effectively over. And he said, well, okay, well, I'll do it, but on, only on my own terms. And those terms included promotion to Lieutenant General and a knighthood. So the king said, yeah, okay, all right. So in 1782, Lieutenant General Sir Charles Grey sailed off for North America. Um, but actually he didn't because um, there was a change in government and no one thought there was any point in sending anybody out. So his commission was withdrawn. So in 1793, Grey had, had more or less been in retirement for 10 years, been living the life of a gentleman farmer up in uh, Northumberland. He was 63 years old. He hadn't seen a shot fight in anger for 15 years. And then all of a sudden, one day, a letter arrived from Whitehall sent by Henry Dundas saying, uh, congratulations, you're the commander in chief of an expeditionary force to the West Indies. <laughs> Do we know how he felt about that? Was he happy to return to the uh, colours or, uh, or not? Well, 
I suspect he was pretty, pretty, pretty pleased. Actually, he was a career soldier. I mean, this is what he was. This is what he'd lived his life to do. Uh, he'd been severely disappointed in not being able to go out to North America in the end, um, and, I, and I think he was pleased. And the naval commander for the expedition was to be his great friend Sir John Jervis, who by 1793 was a um, I'm trying to think now um, uh, a vice admiral, I think. Yes, vice admiral of the blue. There we go. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, he was basically going on, on a campaign with his best friend, effectively. Was, was um, that just luck or had they, had they managed to wangle that between them? I think it was just luck. I, I can't find any evidence that they managed to wangle it. Um, <clears throat> Jervis was a big name at the time. Uh, he was an officer that, a naval officer that uh, um, accrued significant attention, public attention. Um, he was, you know, he was one of the, the big men in the Navy. Um, he and Gray were very similar character types. And to me, I think they were a character type that was very similar to um, Robert E. Lee, that they were a quietly spoken gentle, gentleman, gentleman, quietly spoken, very friendly, very kind to their inner circle and to their family and to their friends. But put an enemy in front of them and look out, you know, mm. they just went for it. They just completely changed their personality. And that, uh, Gray was like that. Uh, Jervis was like that. Uh, and they were both extremely um, strict disciplinarians. I mean, they could be very kind to the family and the friends and their inner circle of officers. But, you know, even within the first, I think it was day of landing on Martinique, um, Gray had... Um, Two of his soldiers hung for looting. He didn't. He didn't mess about. Yeah, harsh. and Jervis was the same. Jervis was the same character. Right. So these two sort of get together then to to lead this expedition. What what sort of uh, size are we talking there in terms of boats and men? Sure. That's a long, long story in itself. <laughs> poor old Gray and poor old Jervis were let down hugely by by Whitehall. Um, I mean, Jerv uh, Gray got his uh, letter of appointment in about mid-August 1793, telling him that he should have about 16,000 men, which was pretty you know, for, for an army that the start of the year was only 50,000 men. Having 16,000 is pretty, you know, it's a pretty sizable chunk. Uh, I think I worked it out that was about a quarter of the army at that time. Um, once they could scrape together all of, all of the... Uh, all of the men, the departure date was to be um, early September, muddle, delay, that became late September, more muddle, more delay, late October. Um, in October, he, he found out that um, he was only going to have about 10,500 men because a whole bunch of men had been sent off to Flanders to go and campaign with the Duke of York. Um, you could you could expect ten and a half thousand men with twenty four cannon, uh, so it was already reduced. The timing of this was really important because whatever campaign he was going on needed to be wrapped up by about May, because from May onwards in the West Indies was the sickly season, and you could expect from certainly from June onwards, June through to September, October, that's when the fevers hit. 
and you're going to start you're going to start having men dropping like flies so he needed to get his campaign finished before may if he could um more muddle more delay in late october uh, dundas wrote to gray and told him that it's been decided he should proceed to flanders with four of his battalions and help them defend it because poor old duke of york was having a bit of a hard time so he had to put all his west indian ambitions on hold and sail to ostend for a week or two uh, to try and bolster the the um british defenses in flanders um sail back in early november to be told yes okay you can go now he received secret instructions on the 12th of november telling him to attack martinique guadeloupe then saint lucia and then if possible to proceed to saint domingue um and that's when he actually got told that jervis was to be the naval commander which he's very happy about uh and in the following day he received another letter um concerning uh the distribution of booty between ANC forces booty is a very important factor that we will it's two important words that we will come back to in this a bit later on one is booty the other is nepotism that <laughs> oh, the third is in fact sickness we'll get to that at the end <clears throat> but these are all important words in the context and then in 17th of November, um, uh, Gray got told to give away eight of his battalions to the Flanders force. So in other words, half his force. So we thought he had 10,500 men. He's now got about five or six. Um, and time is running out. You know, weeks and weeks were going by. The amount of time he had to do his um, campaigning before the cyclic season was running down rapidly. Um, <clears throat> Gray was at this time running about trying to put together his staff for the campaign. His first choices um, for um, artillery commander was not available. Uh, his preferred chief royal engineer was unavailable. His choice of um, chief doctor was unavailable, which is really big, really bad news. Um, Gray specifically requested uh, as his 2IC uh a, an officer called lieutenant general robert prescott because he'd served with him in north america and any in, and in any event prescott was currently serving in barbados so it made sense he was also able to get another colleague from north america a guy by the name of major general thomas dundas um a guy who looks like a sort of prototype john moore uh he was a light infantryman he was a scot probably a couple of years older than moore uh, with a genius for light infantry tactics, and you sort of get the impression that he was a rising man in the army and would have gone a long way. But we will come back to him a bit later on. Um, <clears throat> so, so Gray didn't actually get to leave for the expedition until about the end of November. He, you know, he, he said goodbye to his family, went by carriage to Portsmouth, got aboard transport with all of his troops, uh, said hello to. Um, Vice Admiral John Jervis, whose flagship was um, commanded by Sir Charles's eldest son, Captain Henry Gray. Remember, I did mention nepotism is a big factor in this campaign. Yeah, I'm starting <laughs> to see it already. <laughs> um, and off they sailed. And this is the end of November, by the way. So this is uh, several months later than they originally planned. And he only sailed with about, by the time he could expect reinforcements because um, they arranged to send the flank companies of all the regiments serving in Ireland direct to Barbados, not from England. Um, 
to act as uh, flank troops. So the Grenadier companies and the light infantry companies from all the regiments serving in Ireland, which was quite a few at the time, uh, sailed separately and would arrive on Barbados about the same time that he did. So that was when he could actually start putting his force together once he was on Barbados uh, in, well, it was really by, uh, by January, January 1794, by the time he, he arrived there. And presumably, tactically, that made sense as well to send the flank companies, given the terrain in the West Indies, quite mountainous and, and uh, forested and so forth. Would that be right? Absolutely. We're talking about steep mountainsides, volcanoes and jungles. It's, it's unlike uh, European uh, countryside, as you could possibly imagine. Um, <clears throat> and it was really the flank troops, because once he arrived in Barbados, um, uh, Gray assembled all of the, well, all of the Grenadier and Light Companies from all of the flank companies, from all the battalions in Ireland, plus the Grenadier and Light Companies from all of the regiments serving in the West Indies into three composite Grenadier battalions and three composite Light Battalions and put them all under the charge of Thomas Dundas, who I mentioned a minute ago, given his expertise and skill at, at controlling Light Infantry. Um, in the, yes, the, the, the regiments that had been serving in the West Indies, these were veteran troops, but all of the regiments that had come out from Ireland, these were, these were green troops. They might be flankers, they might be better than your average run-of-the-mill, you know, line infantry, but they were still uh, green troops and they still had stuff to learn. Um, so they weren't, you know, crack troops at the start, but they certainly developed into crack troops during the campaign. Right. Oh, fan fantastic. So, so those those companies then that probably built his force, his total force up to what are we thinking by this point? About seven, eight thousand. No. Well, <clears throat> by this time, his final numbers he had on Barbados were about six and a half thousand. Remember, he was promised sixteen and a half thousand at the start, so it's ten ten thousand less. And not only is he is he expected to capture these islands, but once he has captured them, he is meant to maintain a garrison on them. So that for every island he captures, he's got to leave a garrison behind before he can capture the next one. So there's a fundamental problem with that equation. Six I mean, from your, from your, really uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Steve, from, from your research and going through presumably the correspondence and so on, is he aware of what a shit sandwich he's got here or is he putting a brave face on it? He is aware that this is, uh, he's seriously worried about the time left because it's, it's early January when he arrives on Barbados and he's still got to assemble his force together. Troops arrive late, transport got lost, transports coming from Ireland and England got lost and arrived late. You know, you couldn't just sort of, they didn't all arrive en masse. Um, he had to send, assemble his staff. He had to, had to find brigadiers for his, for his force. Um, he had to get to know the people because, you know, one of the brigadiers that, um, he used in his force uh, was a guy by the name of Colonel John White, who had long experience in the island, but um, Gray didn't really know him. Um, but he was a very experienced man. Um, White had actually spent a lot of time on Barbados before the campaign interviewing French emigres who had, who had left Martinique um, after the Republicans had taken over um, because the political situation in these French Antilles islands was extremely complex. Um, it's almost a book in itself. In fact, I think there probably are some books in itself on this topic. 
Um, this is the division, essentially, between those uh, people who still supported the monarchy and those who were pro-Republican. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in Martinique, um, had about, at the time, about 100,000 inhabitants, of which, you know, roughly maybe ten or 12,000 were French planters, 6,000 were Creoles, and the rest were slaves. Um, the French planters were almost to a man... Um, supporters of the royalists because they tended to be wealthier they tended to be some of them had aristocratic backgrounds they were far more interested in maintaining the status quo the revolution meant suggested all sorts of things could happen that they had no control over uh, they didn't like what they were hearing from france um, the creoles were kind of in you know they could go either way um, but the slaves had been set free by the Republican um, declaration of, I think it was in about February 1790, no, April 1792. Uh, the French Legis Legislative Assembly um, extended citizenship to all, of the New Republic to all men of colour. So slaves were effectively free because they were citizens of the Republic the same as the French planters were. Um, <clears throat> So the situation on, on Martinique was very um, complex uh, because you had various camps. You had royalists, you had republicans, you had creoles. You could maybe with a foot in either camp. You had all the slaves or ex-slaves as they were at this time. Um, Saint Lucia, which is the smallest of the three islands, was almost overwhelmingly uh, republican. Uh, they threw their they threw their hat in the ring to be republican right from the outset. Um, Guadeloupe went through a fair bit of upheaval. There was a lot of um, conflict in the early days of the French Revolution. Uh, and in the end, they all banded together to create um, their own Guadeloupian army, a multiracial Guadeloupian army, um, to defend Guadeloupe against royalists, uh, which they hadn't done on any of the other islands. And Guadeloupe was the third island that Gray intended to attack. Um, but the British didn't really know too much about this. They just assumed that all three islands were much for muchness. And in fact, they weren't. They were all three very different kind of things. And um, yeah, they were, <clears throat> Gray was walking into a, a tinderbox <laughs> of, of stuff going on. So it was very complex. So, and his first port of call was Martinique, was it? Is that where he was, he was to attack first? Yeah, bearing in mind that... <clears throat> He wanted to have this all wrapped up completely by the end of May, preferably sooner. Um, and his expeditionary force left Barbados at the start of February uh, in three divisions. And, I mean, really, bits of this um, campaign, some of the stuff that do reasonable, like commando raids and, and SAX, SAX, SAS, sorry, expeditions rather than... Um, traditional continental warfare of the 18th century. He landed his three brigades um, on Martinique. Uh, two of them landed more or less simultaneously. Um, Gray and Brigadier General White landed at the south of the island and then really, I guess, yomped overland to try and capture a, an island called Pigeon Island, which uh, overlooked the main bay and, uh, and the... The main bay in Martinique was considered the premier um, anchorage of the entire that part of the West Indies. It was a seriously uh, desirable anchorage for ships. 
Um, and they wanted to capture Pigeon Island, which was the, uh, a fortress with big guns overlooking Fort Royal Bay. So they really wanted to capture that. Uh, at about the same time, and well, on the same morning, uh, Sir Thomas Dundas landed on the east coast uh, at a place called Trinité with his light brigade uh, and um, attempted to capture that town and also move inland and capture the, the heights in the centre of the island overlooking the main the main town, which was, um, uh, well, a place that was called Fort Royal back in the Bourbon days, and then the, the Republicans changed it to Republicville <coughs> because the the names of the towns in these West Indian islands were constantly changing. Uh, you know, the Bourbons would give it a Bourbon name and then the Republicans would capture it and give it a Republican name and the British would capture it and call it Fort George or Fort, Fort Edwards and the French would capture it back and call it, you know, <laughs> so it went on and on. So it must be confusing for you as a historian covering this era then, trying to cross-reference all these names. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. This is, there's a lot to take in. About, actually, I think it was the late the same day that the um, Gray's 3rd Brigade and his weakest brigade under the command of Sir Charles Gordon landed uh, just north of Fort Royal uh, at a place called uh, Castinavir, um, which was actually quite close to the capital. You only had a short overland uh, march to get there, but it was terrible countryside. It was like super steep cliffs, thick jungle. Um, so he moved incredibly slowly. Um, and that was um, sort of what happened in the first couple of days. Eventually, White managed to capture Pigeon Island and the and then the... Royal Navy sailed into Fort Royal Bay on about the 12th of February. Um, the French, however, still occupied uh, the town itself, which is called Fort Royal or Republicville. There was another fort on the hill, a, a very strong fort actually, called Fort de la Convention or previously Fort Bourbon. And there was a head, there was a, a mountain range overlooking that called Mont Le Brun, or Mont Le Bruneau. <clears throat> and um, Dundas had managed to capture Mont Le Bruno, so he had he had overlooking rights to the city, but the French were holed up in the city, which is in a, in a very strong fort. And the French garrison was commanded by a quite young French lieutenant general called Nassion Rochambeau, who was the son of one of Lafayette's main men uh, during the American War of Independence. And... You know, to all intents and purposes, Rochambeau looked like, you know, this was a, a guy on the up. I mean, this is a guy that was going to be one of Napoleon's marshals, you know. And he acted like it, like he, he once he uh, got his men into um, into Fort de la Convention and uh, a very small, very, very small force. He only had like two companies of regulars and an artillery company and a lot of locals. Um, and he then, uh, you know, he, he sat down to... to um, you know, say, well, come and get me out because I'm not surrendering. In the meantime, Sir Thomas Dundas over on the East Coast um, had decided to capture a town up on the northwest of the island called Saint-Pierre. Saint-Pierre was effectively the capital of Martinique, even though uh, Fort Real was the, you know, the commercial capital, so to speak, <coughs> certainly the military capital. Um, 
So we split his force into two and had them march across um, the north side of the island. The north, the north part of Martinique has five extinct volcanoes. It is all just mountain ranges. So for a day and a half, his troops literally walked up and down mountains to attack a, a, a French outpost called Mont Rouge up on the north end of the island overlooking Saint-Pierre, um, which they did. I mean, this is like an SAS operation. This was in stifling heat. The guys are dressed in European uniforms, you know, with thick red coats and shirts and long pants and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Full What's pack. It's probably about, you know, uh, 42 degrees Celsius and 120% humidity. Um, and they marched overnight and, and marched up a mountain range and, and, and captured this thing where Gray took his first serious casualty of the, of the campaign. The, a guy called um, Colonel John Campbell commanding the Ninth Foot. Uh, was picked off by a sniper, but they they easily took the uh, the fort, and um, they were there, then able to march to the cliffs overlooking Saint Pierre, and then came down the cliffs uh, in conjunction with a naval assault on Saint Pierre, um, and captured the commercial capital uh, of uh, Martinique. So the only thing left to capture by that point was uh, Fort Real and uh, Fort. Fort, well, Republic Ville and Fort de la Convention were the, were the things left to capture by by then. But <clears throat> this was about um, close to, I think, about 20th of February by this stage. So they're already a couple of weeks into the campaign. Gray really wanted to finish, uh, really, really wanted to capture Martinique by the end of February to give him time to do St. Lucia and Guadeloupe. <clears throat> and uh, couldn't really afford to spend too much time mucking around in Martinique. He really wanted to capture it. But he hadn't gambled on uh, on Rochambeau. And uh, Rochambeau was not a guy to be, uh, not a guy to give up easily. So uh, Rochambeau... So what did he, what um, did he do? <laughs> he went into, well, Gray had no choice but to go into siege mode. So he had all the Royal Navy men bring all their heavy cannons aboard uh, or take their take all the heavy cannons from the ships and bring them onto land and crew them with Royal Navy men, <clears throat> 24-pounders, 18-pounders, 36-pounders, all that kind of stuff. Set up a ring of steel around um, uh, Fort Royal and Fort Bourbon and um, basically hammered it <laughs> with... Uh, I think in the end he had something like 117 um, artillery pieces, something like that. Um, and the, the French just would not, they rejected multiple times, uh, pleased to surrender. The, I mean, the, the, the Grace Force were turning the place into a ruin, but they, they just would not surrender. Um, and they finally surrendered on the 22nd of March. Now, you may recall a minute ago, I said that Gray wanted to capture Martinique by the end of February. Yeah, so the 22nd of March was because uh, he's still got to get all late. his campaigning finished by May. Is that right? We've got two more islands to go. Let's not forget. <laughs> so Fort Bourbon was taken, and you know, <clears throat> sure as eggs, it was renamed Fort Edward. Um, the French garrison marched out with colours flying, boarded ships, and were repatriated from France, uh, with the exception of Rochambeau, who, <clears throat> fearing that um, the Republicans weren't keen on uh, their generals who failed. <laughs> and I think he thought if he went back to Paris, he'd suddenly find himself with a rather large air gap between his chin and his chest. So he um, boarded a British ship and went to Philadelphia. Um, 
and disappeared to America for some time. So <clears throat> there's March gone. It, Gray is effectively already a month late, really, from what he wanted to do. He had to leave um, Garrison behind to Garrison, the island of Martinique, uh, and he still needs to move on to capture the next island, which is Saint Lucia. And <clears throat> one of the things overlooked with the expedition was nobody thought to pack in the ships some civilian governors for these places. So he had no choice but to leave senior military officers in these places as civilian governors, which was a big mistake. So he had no choice but to leave Lieutenant General Robert Prescott behind as governor of Martinique, um, <clears throat> which turned out to be not terribly wise because Prescott was a, a very particular character. <clears throat> he was, very, he was a, a very good soldier, but he somehow managed to fall out with just about everybody. <laughs> it's just one of those, one of those people. So, so that was Martinique, and um, yeah, already, uh, already a month late. Yeah. So, so where's where's next on his list? Where does he need to go next, and what's his plan? Um, next island south was Saint Lucia, uh, which was a cakewalk, to be honest. Um, in fact, he only used his composite battalions of light troops and grenadiers, uh, and they took almost no casualties. The um, French garrison was very small. Um, the French governor was not a Rochambeau. He was, in fact, pretty bit of a chicken, to be honest. He gave up pretty easily. Um, and it only took two days to capture the entire island. Uh, Grace Force suffered no casualties. Um, the only casualty I've been able to find out anything about was the youngest... Um, Royal Engineer Officer on the force, whose temple was grazed by a musket ball, and you know, sort of did that or something like that. And I'm thinking another inch to the to the left would have put an yeah. end to him. And he was a young chap by the name of Lieutenant Richard Fletcher, later Wellington's oh, uh, chief goes engineer on to in, the peninsula. in the peninsula. Yeah. yeah, and he was after that. He uh, was taken to a ship and sent to Grenada to uh, to recuperate. He was the only near casualty. So St. Lucia was, in fact, a complete cakewalk. Um, but they still had uh, Guadeloupe to go, and they didn't really know what they were getting into on Guadeloupe, let me tell you. And so just to recap, Guadeloupe is the island that's raised its own Republican army by this point. Yes, it has. And, and more will follow, as you'll find out shortly. Um, <clears throat> Guadeloupe was one of the world's major sources of sugar. I mean, the industry, the sugar industry in Guadeloupe it then was worth six million pounds a year. So that's probably 600 million pounds a year in today's money, to give you some idea. Um, it was a very strange shape of an island. You've got a very low-lying flat island uh, off to the east. You've got a very mountainous island off to the left. You've got a, an isthmus that connects the two in the centre. And on the near the isthmus is the, um, the capital, uh, Pointe Petra. And um, <clears throat> it had its own army. Uh, it had uh, all sorts of people in the ranks. It had Republican whites. It had a class that the French referred to as Jean's de Calais, which is uh, free gentlemen of colour. Uh, all uh, mingling is as part of a giant army, ex-slaves. You know, it, it, 
it had uh, something that the other islands didn't have. And no one, the British didn't know anything about this. Yeah, they just assumed the three islands were kind of a bit much like each other. So it was finally about 11th of April uh, that Gray and a thousand men were able to land um, on the southern coast of Guadeloupe. Um, and they were able to attack a fortress called Fort Fleur de Pay, uh, which is on a hillside overlooking a headland just east of the capital. And, you know, in true Gray fashion, they went in, uh, the light battalions led the way. Uh, they went in, guns not loaded, bayonets only, and managed to capture the town pretty quickly, uh, which was pretty handy. Um, and Gray then took his grenadiers across the water to the mountainous island, and then they were able to capture bits of that pretty quickly. But uh, one of the reasons that they had managed to capture it quickly is really the, I think the French, most of the local army were somewhere up in the north um, waiting to <clears throat> waiting to strike. Gray managed to capture Guadeloupe in pretty much 10 days and for, the, for less than 100 men. So he thought he was on a great thing. Um, <clears throat> he thought he'd done well. He thought Guadeloupe was his. Um, and, you know, the, the, they say in warfare, hubris is a terrible thing. Um, once he thought he had it, he let his guard down. And two things happened. One is yellow fever started to come into play, particularly as April turned into May. And you had um, said that May is where the fevers start to correct. kick in. Correct. But then something else happened that they couldn't predict. Um and even even the, the people on the, the French people on the islands didn't know this is that on the 23rd of April, um, <clears throat> which was you know about the same time as the capturing um, Guadeloupe, um, a French squadron left Rochefort bound for these islands with a uh, a small colonial army and companies of artillery that had uh, they were selling response to Rochambeau's call for assistance dated back in February when the British had appeared. And the French had no idea that these islands had already fallen. Um, and aboard one of the ships was a French civil commissioner, um, died in the wall, hardcore Republican, a real hard nut. Um, he actually had a guillotine locked away in the, in the hold. And he fully intended like to any good it. Republican should. Like you do. Uh, his name is Victor Hughes. Um, he seemed like a hard nut. His background, he wasn't a hard nut. His parents were silk traders and he'd, um, his family had lived in uh, Saint-Domingue um, and he had lost all his family in the Haitian Revolution. And uh, he'd sailed back to Marseille where his, where his family were from with the clothes on his back, uh, made his way to Paris and joined an extremist Jacobin group. <clears throat> Hence the uh, guillotine. And... Um, <clears throat> This squadron, uh, French squadron, arrived uh, close to Guadeloupe in early June, uh, totally oblivious to the fact that British were even in Guadeloupe. Um, <clears throat> and they were unchallenged by the Royal Navy because after Guadeloupe had fall fallen, Jervis had allowed his squadron to be dispersed over a very wide area to do other stuff, given that they thought the, the expedition was over. He had ships out everywhere. 
chasing privateers and guarding other ports and, you know, doing naval stuff. Um, and there's only a single frigate in the harbour. Um, and all of a sudden the French show up. So the French, so Hughes and his army waded ashore, uh, immediately set up the guillotine. He set up a um, military tribunal to judge the aristocrats on the island, um, started to actually guillotine a few because to him, any aristocrat was an enemy, whether they found guilty or not. <clears throat> and the only nearby British garrison at that time, which was in Fort Fleur de Pay, comprised the 43rd foot, later the 43rd Light Infantry, which due to disease and other reasons only had 174 men fit for duty. Such was the you know, nature of warfare in the West Indies at the time. Shocking, really, um, when you think a battalion at full strength should be, you know, touching towards a 1,000. Yeah, probably at this time, a full-strength British battalion was actually more like 600. The, the 1,000 didn't really come along until sort of after 1,803. But even so, I mean, that's still less than less than a third of what it should have been. Um, by this time, Major General Thomas Dundas, who was in charge on Guadeloupe, um, caught yellow fever. And you may recall I did say that Ch uh, Thomas Dundas was, you know, a potential superstar. Um Light infantryman, beloved by his troops, extremely talented. All his commanding officers loved him. Um, died of yellow fever. Uh, so that was a huge loss. <clears throat> um, a couple of days later, the French force attacked Ford, Fort Fleur de Pay um, with nearly 2,000 men. The poor old 174 men of the 43rd foot couldn't last out too long. They had royalist militia with them who immediately panicked opened the gates and ran out, allowing the <laughs> allowing the French in. And Drummond and some of his men escaped, but about half the battalion or what was left of it were taken prisoner. So Charles Grey at this time had been visiting other islands nearby to see how things were going and generally looking after, you know, the expeditionary force and all the... Because he not only was the expeditionary force commander, but he was also commander-in-chief, Windward and Leeward Islands. So it wasn't just these islands in his Ballywick. There were other things yeah, he had to do. It was a big job. So he, he came back, was completely alarmed and surprised to find that Pointe Pritchard was now in French hands. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Drummond and what was left of the 43rd foot had retreated to Berville, which is a camp on the isthmus that joins the two islands. Um <clears throat> Uh, Hughes and his men then captured the capital. Um, <clears throat> Gray then tried to recapture Pointe Petra in a um, in a night attack. Again, you know, bayonets only. No, he loves his bayonets, doesn't he? He's loved it. That's why the book's called By Fire and Bayonet. <laughs> he loved it. Um, <clears throat> that was a disaster. They lost all order in the darkness. By this time... Gray's three light and three grenadier battalions has been reduced to two light and two grenadier battalions, both seriously under strength, because that was all the men that were left. Uh, and after a couple of months of continuous campaigning, and bearing in mind Gray had put them in as the needle point of every attack, was the light and grenadier battalions. So they were being worn out um, and they were sick. There was a lot of sickness in them. So their effectiveness was way down on what it had been at the start. Um, so that, that was a failure. Um, so Gray retreated, established a new position at Berville, which is the camp on the, camp on the um, Isthmus, 
and um, pulled together every man he could find to help fortify the position. I think eventually got to about 500 men. Then he had to go back to Martinique because you may remember I'd said that Prescott was a particularly prickly character who had managed to upset just about everybody in Martinique. Um, <clears throat> there had been a lot of extortion going on. Um, <clears throat> when the British captured uh, Saint-Pierre, there were some American ships in the harbour and of course the British went, thanks very much, we'll have those. We'll sell them off and pocket the money. Um, which you might think sounds reasonable because weren't Britain and America at war not that long before and weren't America and France good buddies? Well, actually, no. Uh, the relationship between America, United States of America and France had soured since the revolution. Uh, and the US, actually, Britain was America's biggest trading partner. So <clears throat> just... Uh, grabbing their ships and grabbing all their stuff on the ships and selling it was not a uh, not necessarily the right answer no um this is where the whole idea of booty comes in because soldiers back then relied on either booty which is money captured during a campaign or prize money which was money awarded after a campaign for serious income because their income normally was not serious <laughs> it was pretty poor <clears throat> um <clears throat> so at about the same time that gray uh, was pulling his force back into the camp at Beville in this low-lying swampy ground in the Isthmus. He received a letter from Henry Dundas accusing himself and Jervis of pecuniary crimes and extortion of prize money. And just, just and for it, anyone who doesn't know, I'm assuming there was no relationship between the two Dundases we've been talking about. Correct. There's a, there's a lot of Dundases in British um, politics and army matters at this time. In fact, a lot of them actually are related in some way by like being second or third cousins or fourth cousins twice removed and all that kind of stuff, but not directly related. But yes, it can be very confusing. <laughs> <clears throat> so Gray's had all his prize money cancelled. Um, <clears throat> and he was actually, they were both outraged and decided to sail home and fight the charges. Um, <clears throat> which seems Prescott, a strange uh, thing to do in the middle of the campaign, which is still ongoing. Yes, it is. But it happened. <laughs> the um, power of money. Been, hit someone in yeah. the pocket and they'll come for you. Absolutely. Prescott, as I said, in Martinique had been making enemies of just about everybody, particularly all the locals. Um, and I have sat in the um, Palace Green Library in Durham in the UK reading through his correspondence to Sir Charles Gray, and it's extraordinary stuff. I mean, some of the things that he says is it borders on insubordination. I think in one point in a letter he says, are you trying to threaten me, Sir Charles? And um, Gray actually ended up making copies of all his uh, correspondence he received from Prescott so that when he got back to London, he could pull it out in evidence. Um, <clears throat> And just to make matters worse, he'd left Sir Charles Gordon, one of his brigadiers, uh, as governor uh, on St. Lucia. And the extortion um, being undertaken by Gordon was so bad that um, Gordon was court-martialed and dr drummed out of the service, a colonel, for extortion. It's shocking, <laughs> it's really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so anyway, 
by September 1794, and bearing in mind they they first landed in February, so we're what seven months into the campaign. Um, you've got the garrison on Martinique, which is not particularly big. You've got a small garrison on Saint Lucia, which has just lost its governor because he's been court-martialed. You've got what's left of Gray's force on Guadeloupe is hemmed in to uh, the camp at Beville. Uh, by the local Guadeloupe army on all sides. Well, a combination of the local Guadeloupe army and Victor Hugues French regulars. Um, and they were in a very bad way by early September. Um, they'd lost 330 men to sickness, uh, died just in August, and nearly, four, uh, nearly 1,400 were sick. Um, they had 389 men left to, def to, de to defend a two-mile perimeter, which is... Um, a long way from, a long way from perfect. Uh, I can't, I can't even do the maths, but that means there's very big gaps between each man. Yeah, and like four cannons, it's like they have almost no chance. Um, <clears throat> uh, Republican forces were spread all over the all over the island, um, basically snuffing out what few British uh, strong points remained. Uh, on 30th September. Hughes really got set down to work. At 4 a.m., he put a major assault in on Beville, uh, which lasted for three hours. Um, uh, British uh, naval vessels tried to anchor offshore to provide artillery fire to help the defenders, but French gunboats drove them away. Um, Gray, by this time, was laid up with dysentery um, and unable to take any part in the defence. In fact, he'd gone back to, to Martinique, I think. So, um, oh, hold on. Sorry to sound ignorant here. So, Gray, Gray had been back to England and returned, or he hadn't left yet? No, he hadn't left yet. Oh. He was planning to return, particularly after he got Dundas's letter saying he was guilty of extortion. Um, but Gray, by this time, was 64 years old, um, and he'd had health problems before. Uh, Jervis had health problems. Um, this was a very demanding campaign. You know, they're roughing it for seven months in the some of the harshest conditions. And these are not young men. In fact, they were too old to, to be in command. Um, you know, it's, it's probably well, it was a good thing that, you know, the Wellington, the Wellington was um, Expeditionary Force Commander when he was 39. That was a lot more realistic. Um, uh, early October, um, Beville camp capitulated. There's only 150 men left standing by this point. And they were all herded, herded aboard French prison hulks and left in hulks for 18 months, um, moored off Guadeloupe. I, mean, I, I think you can imagine what uh, what sort of uh, experience that would have been. I, I'm sure very few of them survived. Do you do you know the answer to that? Um, <clears throat> some did, and some of them, uh, some of the officers that I know of, went on to become uh, something in later careers. I mean, one of them, one of the the junior ensigns in the 43rd foot was a young guy by the name of uh, Francis Skelly Tidy, who commanded the 14th foot Waterloo um, 21 years later. Um, another one of them was uh, Robert Dale, who commanded the 93rd foot at um, New Orleans, also in 1815. Um, so they survived. And um, right. unfortunately, after they were released in, I think, about 1796, they arrived home to England to find that... Um, they had been uh, superseded. Uh, younger men, in, uh, more, less senior men in their regiment had, had, had leapfrogged over them in terms of seniority and promotion, just yeah. to make the experience really nasty for them. 
Um, and so, does, so this, does this essentially mark the end of the campaign, Steve, or is there still a bit more to not go? Not quite. There's one little exclamation mark on the end of it. Um, yeah. By this point, um, Robert Prescott had um, arrived on the island and he'd um, taken command of a fort on the southwestern corner of Guadeloupe called uh, Fort Matilda. Um, which was overlooked by a mountain range, and really, basically, all of the um, all of the British survivors had kind of streamed down to Fort Matilda. It was like the last bastion, you know. And he he was commanding a very very small garrison. Um, and by early December, the Republicans had way more artillery than the defenders, and had managed to destroy most of the the guns in the fort. Prescott knew he had no choice but to evacuate. Luckily, he had the Royal Navy sailing around. Uh, and on the 10th of December, um, what was left of the British fort in Guadeloupe, and we're only talking like 200 men, um, got aboard the ship in the dead of night and managed to uh, sail away uh, without loss. Uh, so it was a really nasty end. Bearing yep. in mind, though, that Martinique and uh, St. Lucia were still in British hands. <clears throat> So that was was that considered then to have been a victorious campaign because they still held those two islands? Mixed bag, I think. Um, certainly, having Martinique and Saint Lucia, you know, was not to be sneezed at. There was there were serious gains, um, but Guadeloupe was, you know, a big pity. Um, but you know, six and a half thousand men was just never going to stretch that far, particularly to an island that had its own army. And particularly, they were completely uh, ruined after the, the French arrived, and, and no one knew anything about the French arriving. Even though even the locals didn't know that they were going to arrive. Yeah. Um, and Gray and Jarvis arrived home in January 1795, um, expecting to to be treated as heroes. Um, but they arrived into London to find that they 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 were suspended from active service on account of all the pecuniary pecuniary crimes. Um, and there was huge legal issues about co their confiscations, particularly the American vessels. Um, believe it or not, on these islands, there were, in fact, British planters who had been there for many years, who all complained to their Planters Association, the West India Planters and Merchants Association, uh, back in the UK, uh, that um, Gray and his men had been way too heavy-handed with their extortions. Uh, actions were taken in Parliament. Um, <clears throat> The government didn't really want to enter into this dialogue, though, because as far as they were concerned, they sent Gray and Jervis out there to capture some islands. They'd captured some islands, and therefore they weren't going to prosecute them. Of course they weren't. They hadn't done all of their job, but they'd done a good job. Um, and some of the... You remember I mentioned the word nepotism. Um, <clears throat> some of these extortions included uh, after... Um, Gray took Martinique, he, he appointed uh, civil commissioners, uh, trade commissioners and various commissioners in, in the various ports to collect um, customs money and all that kind of thing. And he had written into their contracts that a lot of these trade commissioners were to hand over 50% of their profits to the benefit of Gray's sons. No way. Who were junior on the campaign. One of them was a lieutenant. You know, 50% of all the trade money... Uh, trade customs duties collectible in Saint-Pierre shall be paid to my son. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> and there was a lot of this happened and a lot of extortion happened, but 
back in the 18th century, that apparently was not uncommon. I mean, today it would be, you know, screaming headlines, you know, it would be like front page of the sun, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Back then, that was, in fact, reasonably common. And the whole thing about booty was a reasonably common thing to do. Like you you took a fortress, um, and Gray's view of it was, we spent a lot of money to take this fortress, so you're going to pay, right? You're going to give us money. And you're going to pay us back for us capturing your fortress. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, and that's just what happened back then. Um, and and so Grace essentially got let off the hook then, the two of them. Does this mark the end of his career or do we see him again? Not completely, but his health is against him. Um, you know, he's had a lot of health issues. Um, he, after the campaign, he is given command of a district because senior general officers were given commands, military commands of districts around Great Britain. I think he's the southeastern district or something like that. In 1798, he's made a commander of, of a smash and grab raid to Ostend in Belgium, a sort of uh, small expeditionary force to land in Ostend and ruin uh, the French uh, port facilities in Ostend to disrupt French shipping. It was a bit like the Dieppe raid in World War II. It was like a small force, um, which actually landed, managed to achieve most of its objectives, but then the weather changed. The weather got really rough and they couldn't disembark the troops and eventually the French surrounded them and captured the whole of them. Um, Grey wasn't captured because he spent the whole thing aboard ship, so he was he was Okay. Um, no, but he got no negative press about that because it was felt that it really wasn't his fault it had failed. Um, it was it was really all due to the weather, and they just couldn't get the men away after it. But he did quite well after the campaign in 1796 and 1797. Um, prize money. This is quite independent of the booty that they pocketed during the campaign. Um, <clears throat> all participants in the campaign got what were known as dividends or prize payments. And uh, Sir Charles Gray received about 11, just over 11,000 pounds, which is equivalent to about 1.1 million pounds today. Uh, his brigadiers got about a third of that, um, as did Thomas Dundas's estate. Um, <clears throat> uh, battalion commanders received about a tenth of that. So they got the equivalent of about 100,000 pounds each. A typical private or a drummer received uh, 15 shillings and fourpence. Uh, which is equivalent of about eighty pounds oh. for a ten-month campaign. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> so, so not much. No. So, um, and Gray died in eighteen hundred and seven, from memory. Um, uh, so he didn't. Other than Austin, he didn't really didn't really campaign again after. Yeah. After this campaign, but his health wasn't his health wasn't really good. Um, yeah. against well, so I mean, just be, before we sort of move on briefly, what do you? How is your assessment of Gray as a commander? Did he? You, you said he was seen as a pretty decent guy, but a disciplinarian. But tactically, did he show a lot of nous? You know, these these uh, assaults on these different islands, his uh, you know use of the navy and so forth. You know, these are complicated things. Do you think he did, generally did a pretty yeah. good job? Yes, yes, I do. Um, he used his flank battalions extremely well. 
because he was, I think he was a light infantryman at heart. Um, and he'd proven that in North America. Um, his, his Dundas's march overland and over mountain ranges to capture St. Pierre was extraordinary. Uh, it's a pity almost nobody knows about it today. I mean, I, you know, I read, uh, um, uh, accounts of, you know, like Wellington's retreat from Burgos when they had to, you know, retreat a couple hundred miles in heavy rains and the whole force disintegrated. I'm thinking, holy crap. Um, Gray sent his men in full pack over a mountain range in, you know, extreme humidity and extreme heat, and they did it overnight, and they still captured the town. <laughs> you know, um, I, th I think he did things that uh, perhaps, you know, later commanders didn't even manage to do themselves. Um, in a small campaign that's a little bit on the outer, not very well known, um, and didn't have any huge strategic impact overall because at the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, these islands were handed back to France, of course. Um, and then um, Sir George Beckwith had to recapture them in 1809 and 1810, uh, which were much quicker campaigns because um, I guess the French didn't have a Rochambeau <laughs> to, uh, to, to keep them at bay and they didn't have a Hughes, perhaps. Um, so, and yeah, no, I... I mean, for me, as someone who doesn't know that much about the campaigns in the West Indies, the one thing that stands out to me whenever I read about it is the horrific death rate. Uh, I don't oh, yeah. want to necessarily say casualties because that implies lost in action. But, you know, the amount of soldiers who died of disease strikes me as horrific. What, what's from your research? What sort of casualty rates or death rates are we talking from diseases like yellow fever? Okay. Um, Gray landed with six and a half thousand men and he got about 500 reinforcements during the campaign. So you could say he had 7,000 men. Um, by the end of the campaign of that 7,000, over 5,000 were dead. And about 200 of those were from battle casualties. If that gives you an idea. Um, of his serving officers, 27 were killed in action and 170 died of fever. And if you have a look at the individual regiments uh, that served under him, uh, the 39th foot lost 15 out of 32 officers. And when I say lost, I mean dead from fever. Uh, the 43rd lost 13, the 56th 10, 64th 11, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. Most regiments lost their COs to fever. Um, the Royal Navy was hit just as bad. Uh, 50 masters of transport vessels perished from the fever and over well over 1,000 of their Crewmen, there are no available figures for the Royal Navy for the campaign, but it's probably several thousand Royal Navy men also, because this disease was way more rampant on a closed ship where you couldn't escape. <clears throat> um, and the, the, the total um, number of men lost in this period, I, mean, I, I was reading about this the other day, the, the total losses in the period 1793 to 1798 uh, for the British Army in the West Indies were close to 41,000 dead, about 2,000 deserters and over 7,000 discharged uh, as being unable to, to serve. So it's probably 40, about 50,000 men all told. 41,000 dead from disease. Yeah, yeah, and the Royal Navy lost about 13,000. And these are all non-battle casualties. And this is from a relatively small force. But the British Army in the, in the West Indies was never huge. Like it wasn't 100,000 men. It was like 20,000 men. And... You know, there's been lots of lots said about why this was so. Um, 
I think the British troops at that time were not good campaigners. I mean, if you, having read a lot about the Peninsula War, the um, the German regiments, like the, the 60th foot uh, in the campaign, lived much better than British troops because they, 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 they somehow learned. The they, 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 they didn't, they drank wine and they, collectively got a whole lot of food together and whipped up some interesting cuisine out of it. Uh, British troops drank gin or rum and ate boiled beef, right? And they didn't even think to drink water, right? They were marching across uh, these West Indian islands um, with um, canteens full of rum. Didn't even think it, drinking water wasn't even on the agenda. It was, no one even thought that was necessary. Um, and they wondered why guys were dropping dead from heat stroke. And, and they'd all get into camp and then boiled up a big bit of beef. Uh, when in fact, that, and the French were eating fruit, you know. <laughs> so, um, and then, then once they got into barracks, they were all crammed in together. And they, the, the idea of hygiene was not, uh, not something that was well known then. Um, people just didn't realise that hygiene was what caused this. People thought it was, I don't know, somehow came from... I don't know, wherever. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they had a lot to learn about how to campaign, to be honest. Um, and do you think and... they did learn, Steve? Have you seen evidence that they did learn lessons? Yeah, certainly after 1800, um, the losses were, were from disease were a lot lower. I think perhaps they were also um, unfortunate that there seems to have been a particularly rampant strain of yellow fever ripping through the, the West Indian Islands around that time. That perhaps wasn't present later on and maybe that was a it was a confluence of, of numerous factors that all allowed it to let loose and carry away you know fifty thousand men in a couple of years yeah um, and that's fifty thousand men in it in a in a period where the total battle deaths would have been less than ten percent of that <clears throat> and i don't know if such statistics are around or if you've come across them but would it be fair to say that in terms of a percentage of those engaged, this was probably the deadliest campaign in British military history? Um, deadliest in terms of disease, you mean? Well, in terms of people dying who were present, yeah. It's certainly right up there. I mean, I, I can't think of, you know, if you look at, I mean, certainly, you know, it's in terms of the mortality rate for those years, and if you have a look at later campaigns, the only thing that probably comes close to it, just in terms of sheer mortality, is probably Waterloo. You know, the 18th of June, 1815, there was an extremely high mortality rate, particularly amongst officers um, and some regiments or actions like, you know, the destruction of Colborne's brigade at um, Albuera. Um, it's probably on a par with that, but they tend to be sort of few and far between. I can't think of any period where Literally 50,000 men died in three years of natural, well, not natural, but non-battle related causes. Because, right. I mean, even if you look at campaigns during the First World War, while the casualty numbers were horrific, as a percentage of those involved, I suspect they uh, weren't quite as high as we're talking about in the West Indies here. Yeah, you got to remember on the First World War, we're talking about huge armies. Um, I mean, the First World War was measured in divisions, uh, you know, the... The, the BEF having, I don't know what it was, 65 divisions or something on the Western Front at one point. I mean, Gray's force was the equivalent of one division. Yeah. 
effectively. So the scale is like dramatically different. No, it's 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 fascinating, and I I still can't get my head around it. And you've read a lot of the primary sources. Was there a lot of comment on this at the time amongst the rank and file and the officers just about the fear for their own lives purely from disease? Were they seeing it and were they understanding what was happening? You bet. Um, regiment, that was one of the reasons why recruiting was so hard at this time because nobody wanted to be to join a regiment that, you know, two weeks after they've joined it suddenly is board a ship heading to the West Indies. It was considered to be a graveyard. In fact, it was, I think it was General William Howe in maybe it was the 1780s or the 1790s when he was in Parliament observed that um, whenever an expeditionary force is sent to the West Indies, they may as well send a regiment of coffin makers to accompany them. (laughs) And that was a senior general talking. Um, And no one knew how to curtail any of this stuff. They didn't know how to stop it, which is the sad bit. They didn't, no one thought, Hang on a minute. We need to um, we need to think about hygiene. We need to think about medicine. And in, ter- in British Army terms, that never really happened until the Crimea. Yeah, uh, it sort of happened a bit during the Wellingtonian era, um, particularly when he got um, uh, gosh, I can't remember his name now. Wellington's doctor. Anyway, oh, I don't know. But it was really, you know, the, the terrible things were happening. In, what was happening in Crimea was almost like what was happening in the West Indies. And then Florence Nightingale and, uh, and a general um, take-up in hygiene was the big difference. Um, sort of made the difference. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Steve, I, I feel we've covered most things. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Is there any, I mean, I know I have missed a couple of bits, but if there's anything you think is really important and we should go back on, now's probably the time. Yeah, no, I think we've we've given it a pretty good going over. Uh, I don't immediately think of anything. We could we could talk about what happened next uh, because in uh, 1795, uh, Sir Ralph Abercrombie uh, commanded a, a huge expeditionary force. We're talking close to twenty thousand um, to try and recapture because after um, the loss of Guadeloupe, uh, Republican sentiment. Uh, extended to almost every island, and every island went into revolt, um, aided and abetted by Hughes and his men, of course. And um, in October 1795, Sir Ralph Abercrombie received orders to sail to Barbados to uh, to recapture as many of these islands as he could, um, because I think by the time Grenada had fallen and St. Vincent and a few others. Um, and that was a major campaign in itself um, that went on for... Gosh, a long time, a couple of years, in fact. Um, and that's before we even considered what was happening on Saint-Domingue, which went until 1798, at uh, which point uh, Sir Thomas Maitland, the government, British governor, said, oh, this is too hard, we're leaving, and left, and handed it back to the, um, the French, uh, well, actually, the, um, the local uh, Republicans. Um, <clears throat> and the, how Abercrombie's force got to... The West Indies is an entire episode in itself because they met with horrendous storms. The entire fleet was dispersed. They arrived in penny packets over a very long period of time. Some regiments ended up not even getting there. Um, and then there was a long, messy campaign by um, uh, Sir Ralph Abercrombie. His 2IC was uh, a young Major General Moore. called John Moore. 
um, and a few other people who made their name in that campaign. Um, but again, they also suffered extremely high casualties due to disease. Um, that whole area was very messy. There was a lot of messy stuff going on. It went on for, as I said, another three years after this. Um, so really, Gray's campaign was like a sort of a, um, you know, a compact, easily digestible part of the whole uh, that I thought would make uh, would make a good story. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about about the book. How how can people get hold of it? Uh, maybe you can just hold it up to the camera. Tell us a little bit about yep. it, uh, where it can be purchased. Uh, well, it's published by um, Hellion Books uh, in the UK. Uh, you can purchase it online. It's called By Fire and Bayonet. It's just come out in uh, in uh, paperback or, or softback, whatever you call it. Uh, it came out in hardback a couple of years ago. It's available online. Um, www.hellion.co.uk. Um, actually, the, the the picture on the cover I have hanging in, in my study. <laughs> what nice. is the picture on the cover? Uh, it's a it's British troops landing. Well, it's it's a generalised view, a sort of composite view, I guess. Um, from memory, Peter Dennis painted this, um, and it's a view of British troops, and there's a boat full of. Um, Grenadiers and a boat full of light infantry landing and skirmishing with the locals on a beach somewhere in the West Indies. Um, this was at a time where, when the West Indies-based troops wore top hats, not shakos or, or tricorns or bicorns, as we know, and the light infantry wore a sort of and type helmet called a casquette, uh, which is very different, a bit like what the light dragoons wore. It's a sort of... Uh, a comb, a furry comb that goes over the, over the top of a helmet, um, which is what they wore. And they're <laughs> all there practical. on the cover. Very practical. Um, and they also wore a sort of cut-down uniform based on what light infantry wore in the American War of Revolution, which was sort of a very, just a sort of single uh, um, single lapel jacket, very, very straightforward, very simple. Um, at least that's what we think they wore. It's, it seems highly likely that the flank companies that arrive from from Ireland may have, in fact, just been wearing their regimental uniforms from Ireland, which we yeah. were in the way too hot. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. that's what we know. Well, Steve, I know you're working on other books. What's next for you? I'm just putting finishing touches to a book called Fit to Command, which is a study of British battalion and regimental leadership in uh, the Great War. By Great War, I mean from 1793 to 1815. Uh, looking at... Um, what British regimental commanders had to go through, because when you look at the historiography of the British Army at this time, there's, particularly in recent years, an awful lot of stuff, memoirs written from the ground up by private soldiers, ensigns, lieutenants, captains. You know, there's a lot of stuff written by those guys, uh, particularly around the Peninsular era. And if you go back to the 19th century, there's a... There's a lot of stuff that comes from the top down, a lot of books about Wellington and Hill and Graham and all those sorts of guys that, that drill down but sort of stop at brigadier level, right? So there's this gap between. You've got between major and brigadier general, there's this kind of gap of very little in the way of information and first-hand accounts. And I was trying to tap into some of that because those guys are doing a very hard job. Um, and it's very hard to find stuff about what they actually did yeah and who they yeah. were and what sort of people they were and what was their what was their social background and what was their demographics and where do they all come from 
you know, were they all English or were, how many of them were Scottish and how many of them were landed squires and how many of them were aristocrats and how many of them were, in fact, ex-rankers that ended up being generals? And there actually were a few of them, believe oh, it or wow. not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found well, half a dozen for the year. Oh, wow. Gosh. Um, oh, wow. That sounds fantastic. And, um, you know, their ages and their backgrounds, were they... Were they uh, you would think they're probably older and posher than their French counterparts. In fact, they're exactly the same age as their French counterparts. They're, in fact, younger than their Prussian counterparts, which is an interesting fact I've recently discovered. Um, You're going to be bursting a few myths. I hope so. Um, you know, the perception of the British officer is he's sort of a pampered toff with a, with a wig and strutting about going to balls and chatting about the weather such like but in fact most of them weren't that at all yeah yeah i mean that's a, that's a stereotype that seems to have stretched throughout throughout history you know the old lions led by donkeys and all of that yeah. stuff and, and and actually you know i i don't while of course there's always famous examples that do fit the stereotype i think there's a lot of very hard working um you know battalion level officers lieutenant colonels majors and so on who were who were tough as old boots and don't get the credit they deserve Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the the, the CO cohort in the Waterloo campaign, um, <clears throat> their average age was 38, and they'd they'd been on average been in the army for 19 years, 19 or 20 years. So these were not these guys had been around. You know, they'd done the hard yards. Um, only one in seven had purchased his rank. Uh, all the rest were promoted or or got to their rank by brevet promotion, uh, by seniority. Um, and most of them had four or five campaigns and some of them had three tours of duty in the peninsula, right? Brilliant. These were not marshmallows, these guys. Yeah. Well, Steve, when, when do you think that book will be out? Ha, <laughs> um, later this year, I'm hoping. Well, I think that was a great summation by Steve of this campaign. If you want to get into more detail, then you really should get hold of his book by Fire and Bayonet that, like I said earlier, is published by Helion. In the meantime, please do like and subscribe if you already haven't. Follow me on YouTube and feel free to sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do so, you'll get a free copy of my book about the Anglo-Zulu War. All right, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.